Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut, which provides individualized clinical medical wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in our state to be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission. Mountainside is currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for its Connecticut and New York locations. Every employee, regardless of position, plays a role in improving the lives of clients and their families. If you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit mountainside.com forward slash careers. And on behalf of the board of directors and staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Several years ago, I attended a discussion at the Yale University Program for Recovery and Community Health, which featured the speaker who was then commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, Patricia Raymer. While talking about programmatic effectiveness in public financing, she mentioned that unless your program shows output, why should I offer you input in terms of cash? That was the first time I'd ever heard anyone mention outcomes as an important aspect of recovery programming. On the whole, discussion of specific outcome measurement is the bane of the substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery industry. Generalities are often mentioned for even the National Institute on Drug Abuse in talking about treatment outcomes simply states that relapse rates for addiction resemble those of other chronic diseases such as diabetes, hypertension, and asthma, and they have that as... as uh, recently is 2018, but I know that goes back much further to probably around 2008 or 2009. Organizational claims of success without hard data to verify it are like those who hunt for Bigfoot. They say they've seen it, but can't produce any actual evidence. There are certainly a lot of claims for both, but all that I have seen is a phony, blurry picture. When outcome measurements are used, Dr. Scott Miller, founder of the International Center for Clinical Excellence in Chicago, reports that there has been no significant change in clinical effectiveness in this field since 1976. Some of you may not have been born by that. Our guests today are Dr. Bob Lynn and Tim Harrington. I connected with both gentlemen on LinkedIn around their consistent requests for outcome data for treatment programs who market themselves as highly effective providers, again, without data to, to support it. Dr. Lynn is an internationally recognized lecturer, researcher, and clinician in the field of counseling, psychology, and addiction. During the past 50 years, he has held leading positions in many clinical settings, levels of addiction treatment, employee assistance program, state government, and as a professor in several universities. He is a board-certified licensed professional counselor and senior fellow in neurofeedback practice. He is also recognized as an expert in family therapy and behavioral therapy, and he is the CEO and founder of the Addiction and Behavioral Health Alliance, among many other roles and responsibilities. Timothy Harrington is a mental and emotional health advocate, entrepreneur, innovator, destroyer of stigma, coach, mentor, writer, speaker, family, family support specialist, husband, and father of daughters. That might be the hardest job of all. He has worked in the behavioral health space for the last 19 years and is currently the chief marketing officer at New Life, the complete virtual care solution for addiction treatment providers and solo practitioners. Thanks for spending a little of your time with us today, gentlemen. A pleasure. 
Dr. Bob, let's start with the simplest and most direct questions. In your professional opinion, why are organizations who make grand claims of success aren't actually showing outcome data? Well, you know, it, it's it, it's you know, it's a simple question, but I, I don't have a simple answer. But I but I will give you uh, you know the most direct answer I can give you, uh, Jeff. The so to begin with. Uh, you have to start with the fact that treatment has never been based on research. So treatment is based on pseudoscience and intuition primarily. And it's very hard to develop outcomes based on something which you can't define or is not based on real science. But even if you could, and even if you used, <clears throat> excuse me, a scientific method, uh, there is no incentive for a treatment center in the United States to provide outcomes because there is no oversight and uh, nobody really uh, holds treatment centers feet to the fire uh, for deliverables. Uh, they can come up with any protocol they want on, under their so-called license and uh, their certifications don't ask for outcomes as well. So so they have, they have no incentive, they rake in the dollars, they, Make these claims about their treatment that are that they can't substantiate based on real-time data, and they and and uh, you know and they bring patients in, keep them as long as they can, even incent them to stay, collect as much as they can, throw them back out there where they came from, and they relapse, and 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 it's just a revolving door, and and so it's a big business without oversight and no incentive to change, and I'm not sure it's because these are good. They're bad. I'm not saying these are bad people, but these are people who are providing services that are questionable. So it's kind of a, a situation where they don't do it because they don't have to. Well, they don't have to. And uh, even if they did, it wouldn't make a lot of sense because they're, they're you know, if, if, you're, if your treatment's not based on science, what, what, what is the outcome of? How do you know, how do you ever know that what you're doing makes the difference? I mean, you know, the, you know, it's, you know, how do you know that, you know, it's really, you know, a real, it's really funny, you know, and I mean, not funny in the, in, in, in the humorous sense, but funny in the ironic sense that when some treatment programs think it's important to look at alumni as, as an outcome, we have, you know, we, we follow up with our alumni, we have alumni parties. Uh, and the reason they, they like alumni is two reasons. One is that it's a way to recruit new patients. And that's number one, believe it or not, in my opinion. Number two is the, the the sad thing about it is that it's a good percentage of those alumni who made it through the uh, uh, the the rigorous treatment that would have done well anywhere or on their own. These are the people who were so highly incented to do well that they 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 you know they they made it through the gauntlet. They would have made it through the gauntlet regardless. I mean, if, you know, if you had them, you know. Uh, you know, there was a. They were, we did some research. One of my earliest studies, as a as a scientist, and I'm a scientist and a clinician, was we compared treatment centers, and one of them was a place on a farm where they sheared sheep, and their outcomes were just as good as you know places that did DBT, CBT, EMDR, and you know, and asked you if you loved your mother when you were growing up. None of that doesn't make any difference. What's the sense of collecting outcomes, you know, on something that you don't know works in the first place? 
you know, there's an interesting thing, and it makes me jump ahead to where I wanted to go, but you, you guys, I'd like to get your opinion on this. You know, from a regulatory perspective, we can say that outcomes don't really seem to matter. I, as I was talking before we started recording, I spoke recently to a card reviewer who said, who said that their standards included checking to see if there was a mechanism for post-discharge follow-up, but there was no concern about what that what came back from using that mechanism and that that data. And the same kind of for the Joint Commission. Um, and we look at shatterproofs and we don't see anything that addresses outcomes either. So it's kind of across the board. What they call standards of care for all of these groups really focuses only on what happens in the treatment center, not what happened because of the treatment. Any thoughts you guys have about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I mean, if you give it any amount of thought, if you just ponder on that for a second, it's it's that it's that whole thing in, in the argument where somebody will say, well, my experience is, and I always say like, but you're not a representative sample of the whole. The whole is much greater than your individual experience, or even the experience of capturing somebody in a moment in time that we divide up into 30, 60, 90 days. It's just not enough. It's not enough on the front door or the back door. We're not taking into consideration what happened before you ever met these people. And then it doesn't seem at a very high level that we really care about what happens to you after you leave. So you think about that captured moment in time, and we put so much emphasis on that when we're we're literally in control of them. And and I and I would, you know, I'm not going to try to project too much, but I think control is a big part of this. You know, it's it's this idea of hurting and you've got to come somewhere else and it's specialty care. And we're really going to look at you and follow you and drive you around and tell you where to go and what to eat and what to consume. But then after that, it's like kind of all bets are off. And I like what Bob said, Dr. Bob said, is that that whole idea of the differences in outcomes, the percentage and difference of outcomes between doing nothing and going to treatment are not that great. And that just doesn't speak well to the model that we've developed uh, at all. And I think that's the opportunity at hand. I get up every single day and it'll be the last thing I say will be something like, what about the outcomes? You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like that's going to be the last, mm -hmm. my last words because I'm invested not only professionally, but personally, you know, I have an experience of going through the rigmarole that is the current model of treatment, which is very limiting. And then I have a family and I have children and I have friends and I've been called upon. As soon as Facebook happened, I got so many Facebook messages when people started to see what I did to help out people that I went to high school with, right? Like, where do I send you? Where do my, where do I send my daughter? And so this is personal in the sense that I, I believe that my, the value of my dollar is worth exactly what it's worth and you better give me a return on investment because i'm sick and tired of this whole thing at treatment works we need to we need to say yes but in what sense what does that mean what is my return on investment what am i getting in return for the idea that treatment works and that's you know that's my work is to figure that out and try to change the system one of the things that you talked about or you, you posted on LinkedIn some time ago was a list of things that are often sold as outcomes, but oh, clearly yeah. are not outcomes. Can we talk about what some of those things are? And Bob, feel free to yeah. jump in too. Yeah, Bob, Bob well, is where I, where I got well, that, right, Bob? Well, you posted that. Well, yeah. I, you know, the, the thing is that uh, 
because we don't have standards of care and we don't do we we don't uh, you know address anything with uh, a bit of scientific rigor and when i say scientific rigor jeff i'm not talking about the double you know the double blind you know uh, you know we, we don't we don't need to spend a million bucks to do a randomized sample to to do rigor, we can do comparison groups or whatever. As long as it's honest, I don't really care. But most of the time, it's not. And I'll give you an example. And I'm going to ask you a trick question. And I'm not. I'm, and it's kind of rhetorical, so I'm not going to ask for an answer. But oh, good. So so if you so if you needed an so you have you have a heart condition, and you need an operation. Okay. So you're doing your research because you're a smart guy and you're going to find out what the outcomes are and all of this, right? And uh, so you look at different hospitals and you look at the staff and you look at the doctor's credentials and you find out at one hospital, there's a high mortality rate and at another hospital, there's a low mortality rate. Which one do you pick? Well, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, I'll pick the one with the low mortality rate, of course. But that might be one, one with the worst staff and the healthiest patients. If you if you really want to get well, you might pick the one like John Hopkins with a higher mortality rate, but better doctors and a better chance of your getting well because it meets your needs more directly. So my point there is that you can torture the data as much as you want. And these things, these so-called success rates. Look, Jeff, the bottom line for me, and I say for me because I'm not trying to you know project or sell to anyone else, but for myself. The real value of outcomes is to inform care, not to promote treatment. I don't, you know, outcomes should never be for promotional purposes. That's, it should be to inform the care so we can evolve it and do better work. Not to, not to say that my, my, you know, my dog's bigger than your dog. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you posted, Bob, that one time, because it really, you know, about what outcomes are not and what they are, because everything that outcomes are not is what this the field uses testimonial certifications uh, the physical plan and meals quality standards alumni participation which you mentioned insurance endorsement even delivering evidence-based care and you say also that all of those may or may not relate to quality of care but ultimately they're not about patient outcomes agree right yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's talk about your, I think you're right, and you're both onto a great point. Um, but let's talk about evidence-based practices for a second. There's an assumption, and yeah. simply that because they're based on research, that equals an outcome measurement. So let's talk about some of the limitations of evidence-based practices that kind of prevent them from being considered out general outcomes. And they were never designed to be that in the first place. But let's, they're interpreted as such. Well, Can we talk know, a little to, bit about that? Sure, Jeff. You know, to begin with, if you really want to talk about, uh, uh, you know, evidence-based practice, uh, uh, I'd be glad to do that. But I'd rather talk about practice-based evidence. Okay. And I and and so evidence-based practice uh, is is not new to this field. And in fact, historically, it's made a lot of sense because it's it's really set a place for future inquiry not for evidence that it works everywhere in the world. So we do research to, to develop uh, you know, you know, theory that we can now re-examine in different places. And if we're doing that, hey, that's, that's fantastic. So it worked in West Virginia, 
let's try it in New Jersey and and and, and begin continue to do our work. No, we have to fine tune it because there are cultural differences, there are whatever. But if you take it as the end point, then you're making a really big mistake because first of all, evidence-based practices are practice in time. And since things are always evolving and changing, you're only measuring something in, in within within a time frame. Secondly, it may have not been replicable in the first place, you know, because and, and for a lot of different reasons. So, you know, that's what that's why when we're doing research to develop the re, the evidence-based practice, we want the most diverse samples that we can get. The more homogeneous the sample, the less replicable it is. And very often we're talking about these homogeneous samples, you know, that that make sense in you know in Navajo country, but but you know they may but they may not make they may not make sense in Hoboken. So you know we we, we you know so we, we 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 you know so for me there is something called practice based evidence where we we develop our evidence based on our practice and our experience rather than doing it from top down it's bottom up and it's real time and it's based on real life rather than a theoretical perspective being uh, thrown upon us. I appreciate that. Thanks for that, because it does yeah. kind of shed some light on things. Um, and I think in almost every communication I've had with Tim over the past few months, context is key, comes into play somehow. And I think you just put that nicely. Um, it really is about context and what's going on. If you were to design an something to measure outcomes, a, a measurement tool, what are some of the things that you think would be important to look at uh, in terms of measurement? Well, well, to begin with, Jeff, uh, I would not ever measure an, a, an outcome. It doesn't make any sense. I would only measure something called proximal outcomes. Okay. In other, in other words, what we're really interested in is benchmarks based on what the patient wants, not what, uh, the, not what the program wants. So anything that is preconceived by the program or predetermined by the program is never an outcome for me. That's a program outcome. And it, and, and it makes no sense to me. What really makes sense are proximal outcomes. And the most important clinical question I ever ask a single patient of mine is what do you want? That's how I start. You know, where many treatment programs saying this is what you need rather than what do you want? So for me, uh, outcomes are based on uh, three different things: what the patient wants, science, where is it, science, and compassion. And uh, you know, so if you could bring what the patient wants, because you, rather together with the science, because you need to be ethical. There's no, you know, and you need to have a, something called, which is just a rare term in this field, informed consent. And and you know, and you need to be compassionate. And I think, so I think, as you mentioned, Scott Miller, what Scott Miller really said, or his, his contribution to the field was really the relationship or the compassion of the client to the, to the, uh, uh, to the, to the therapist, which, which, which surprisingly, uh, which not surprisingly transcends or CBT, DBT or anything else. But what's really important is that you're doing this based on you know, this a, a scientific method. So you can say to your patient, look, and this is what every doctor does who in, 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 in other, look, if you do this, this is more, if you do A, you're more, more likely to have this outcome. If you do B, you're more likely to have this outcome. 
if you'd rather do C, you know, and, and that should be the patient's choice, not the program's choice. And they should have all the choices. You can take medication. You can try controlled drinking. You can try abstinence. You know, you, you know, you, you can try diet. You can try, you know, move, 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 moving to, 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 uh, Malibu, whatever you want to do. No, well, not Malibu. You, you, you'll get sick in Malibu. I'm, <laughs> I have I, a friend that lives in Malibu. I can, I can on this podcast. So I, I can tell you, I can, t- I can, I, I can tell you, I can tell you terrible Malibu stories, but I won't. The, uh, but, but, you know, but, but you get my point. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, so it's, it's, it's really, for me, it's, it's, you know, you have, if you meet those three, three, so uh, the three, three criteria. So what is my default position then for treatment right now? My default position is to do get a good case manager who can advocate for you and you know for the services you need at this time at this point in time as you're presenting. That's 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 my default position. I uh, I think that most of the people, and this is just my opinion, then mm-hmm. you can. You know, I know you can throw all the darts you want. I I, I got a pretty strong suit of armor. The and the I think that most of the people don't do not need an inpatient stay, and if they do, it should be very very short, just for acute care stabilization. Uh, I I would never keep. I rarely would keep a patient for more than seven to fourteen days. I don't think it makes any sense beyond that. I think they become institutionalized, and they don't really. Get, and, and there's a point of diminishing returns, and there's actually some good research that shows that uh, that was. And I can give you the references up mm-hmm. on, on on this if you if you if you're any of your you know people want it. But for me, it's you know the, the, it's got to be client centered, not program centered, and that's why I really worry about these people who people who get funneled into these treatment programs that are one size fits all. You know, you had mentioned, you know, as I did earlier in the introduction, Scott Miller stuff. And one of the stuff that I, things that I really like about Scott, and I think if people, we as a, as a field have a difficult time grasping is that the patient, the client is in control. That if I'm the clinician, I say, hey, let's talk about what, what I'm really not doing well. How am I, what am I doing that's not helping you? Can you do this? And Scott has a great video of where, a, of a woman in Western Europe where the client says, your face bothers me. And she very calmly says, great, thank you. Can you tell me what that means? And it was that it, it created she some, tra- some transference issues for him. And it was just one of the most brilliant things I've seen. Here in America, we have this ego problem that I, I've addressed before um, that I think comes into play and prevents us from being able to do that system-wide. Um, and you mentioned informed consent, and that's something I talk about all the time in ethics trainings saying it's not somebody signing a form when their brain is still kind of mixed up and, and adjusting itself from the substance that they're, uh, is not in their brain. And it, so the way their functioning has changed. And okay, so let's get them to sign something that the court says they're not technically legally able to sign. You know, that brain science doesn't support that they're able to sign that. You know, you know it's, Jeff, uh, some, it's a big some, issue. Some of these issues, you know, are, are not only ethical, they're legal. But but there's no oversight in 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 uh, treatment for addictions and I and I you know and that can I find that confounding I mean I just don't I can't understand you know most you know I probably a good percentage of the treatment would never make it through the FDA if they had to go through that process 
they 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 would they they would just not meet rigorous investigation as ethical or or, or treatment that uh, you know is meets meets uh, minimum standards. Yet there's no there there's no oversight. Uh, all there is is the you know the organizations and both government and private and philanthropical that continue to support the status quo without even asking any questions. And I don't I don't get it. I I get it. You want me to tell you? I sure do. I sure do, too. <laughs> well, because we already know what the problem is. This is the whole idea, Bob, what you're talking about, treatment-centered care versus patient-centered care. Treatment-centered care is based on uh, uh, already, I guess, proven assumptions. They're not even assumptions. They're just proven that we already know who the patients are. They're liar, cheats, and thieves. And they're, they're drug addicts, and they're junkies, and they're alcoholics. Mm-hmm. So we're really, as far as the general public knows, and even learned people, as far as learned people even understand, is that there isn't really much more to know. We already kind of know, you know, and it's like, so what do we really need to oversight? What, what do we need oversight for? What do we need more complexity in terms of uh, how we're delivering care? Why do we need to respect that individual. And that also goes to stigma because we've criminalized drug use and drug users for over a hundred years. And, and that kind of wash is hard or that kind of stain is hard to get out. And I really believe it informs so much and it blocks so much. I think that's been and continues to be one of our hardest things to get through and to, and to dissolve, if you will, or destroy is this notion of we already know who you are. We already know what your problem is. We already know what the solution is. So why do we need oversight? Typically typically well said. Uh, uh, and uh, Tim, uh, one of the things I value about our relationship is how much I learned from you. The, the you know, and, and I, th- I think, you know, as you're, you're, you're spot on and, you know, that, that might be, that might be, you know, the, you know the the festering wound, if you will, and yeah, uh, and I, we keep we keep we keep putting this bandaid on this festering wound, right? And and uh, and, yeah. uh, and we expect it to get better, and 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 it, and it doesn't. It just continues to get worse, and so uh, it's just like prevention. You know, uh, we've spent billions of dollars on prevention, and yeah. the major outcome is that kids think drugs are less dangerous than ever before. So let's just spend another billion dollars doing the same old thing because, and then when I then when I you know I speak to the prevention experts and ask them, well, why do you keep doing this? They say, well, Bob, the real problem is not that we're doing the wrong thing; is that we're not spending enough. You know, <laughs> no I mean, money I, at the problem. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, but, but you know, and you know, it's funny, but it's it's sad. And uh, I'm going to scream at you until you listen. <laughs> so that's it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it worked for my parents, right? I mean, it was just—it was sort of that really, you know, that misinformed or that I would say less than skillful uh, approach to uh, what it, what what is the most important relationship really for any of us is that sort of caregiving, caretaking relationship with people who are completely unskilled. When when I when I talk about coaching families, which I've done for the last twelve years is I've talked about, you know, I, I often start off by just saying, you know, I, I, know, I don't doubt that you love and care for your, your mother, brother, sister, lover. I don't doubt that at all. 
This isn't about that. This is about how you love and care for them. That's what's really going to drive this in a direction that you're going to you're going to feel like you've gotten a return on your investment. Because ultimately, this is about awareness and skill around being in relationship with somebody who's not doing what you want them to do. <laughs> and, and that really is the proposition of parenting. So you, you kind of are thrown into this thing where there is this thing that you can control in a lot of ways until you can't. And, 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 and so it evolves. And yet we're still using old software on modern complexities. And, and it just, it isn't working to your point, Bob. It's like, we're just, we're not, we're not updating our software in terms of how we're dealing with what we know that is different about what we thought we knew. Cause we only knew what we knew. Like you said earlier, I know what I know, but what about what I don't know? And what I don't know is buried in this whole idea of, I already know that it's, you know, it's, this is the problem drugs. And I say this, if I say it once, I say it a thousand times, drugs aren't the problem. We have spent a trillion dollars this is the 50th, 50th anniversary of the war on drugs, right? I think that's what it is. Nixon's de so, declaration yeah. of war, right? And we've got nothing in return except bad news. Well, you <laughs> know, we've got so much death, exactly so much what destruction. Nixon, what, what Bob, uh, what John Ehrlichman said, they wanted to get out of it. Right. They so wanted it, to get out of it. The drug war has is... been very effective for what Nixon's team wanted out of it. Well, right. just, just to be transparent, Tim. And, yeah. and, and to your point, you know, five years ago, maybe less than that, I'm not sure. I, I, I lose time easily these days. But I, I would have, you know, I, I, you know, I look back at the articles that I've published and what I've been teaching, and, and I look at it and, 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 and it frightens me. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, a lot of the things that I reel against today are things I was teaching and or 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 right. clinical work I was doing five years ago. Yeah. And 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 you know, I don't I don't say it apologetically. I kind of say we did the best, I did the best I can with what I had. And if you can honestly say that, then I yeah. think that I think that then you you have some at least some ethical stance. But if you yeah. continue to do that. Yeah. And you're not open to change, and you're not open to learning, then then I think that's the real problem. So if you went to yeah. your physician and she said, you know, I'm going to get, I have an op to do an operation, but I'm going to use my rusty tools from 12 years ago because I I like I like them, and then you know, and that's what I believe. You'd probably run out. But you go into a, a treatment center and they're doing 50 year old treatment, and we accept it. You know, it's yeah. it, Paul Simon said it on on. Uh, one of his albums, you know, I know what I know. It's a thing that I do from the back of my head, uh, you know, from his Graceland album. That's, right, that's right, not, sure. but a couple of things you mentioned yeah. really brought up something for me that I, I just want to throw out there. One is you mentioned prevention. Our colleague who shares a lot of our thoughts, <laughs> Dr. Carl Hart, had thrown out there when he and I were speaking together in Salt Lake City. And he said prevention is the reason prevention doesn't work is because we lie to kids. We tell them if you use drugs. You're going to die or go to jail. And they look around and they see people in their lives who've been using drugs and have never gone to jail and are still alive. So that we treat kids like they're stupid. But I, I also get the idea of there is something simple that we can do to help. And that's not know what we know. And, you know, client comes in and, and I know what their problem is and I know what the solution is. And if they don't follow that, they're pre-contemplative. 
<laughs> we've used in, in my agency this great tool to kind of teach stages of change stuff. It's a Hagar comic where Hagar goes to his doctor with bubbles popping over his head. And he says, Doc, never happened before, but lately I'm suffering from hangovers. What can you give me for him? And the doc says, I'll give you good advice. Stop drinking. Hagar storms out of the office. And we use that and people will say, well, he's pre-contemplative and not focus on the fact that the doctor made the mistake. Hager told him what his problem was, and he didn't listen. If he had addressed the hangovers with Hagar like he wanted, he might have got somewhere with him. You know, it's funny. I, I had this conversation with one of the people I respect most in the field uh, as uh, uh, De Clemente, Dr. De Clemente, who is uh, the authors, one of the authors of Stages of Change, which was, of course, you know, based on uh, smoking cessation, yep. not on drug use. But, uh, and uh, coincidentally, and this goes back, uh, oh, I'm gonna say 25 years, we were both speaking at parliament in, in England. It's a long story, but I'm gonna make it as short as possible. Anyway, uh, when we got there, we had a discussion about, and I, I had a theory of change that was different than his, and that's why they invited us both. I had published something about uh, I believe I, I believe that there is no stage of change. There really is only a, only a continuum of change. It's only a process. We have no way of evaluating. It doesn't make sense. We just need to beat the patient where they are. And so, and and uh, and Carlos Di Clemente was talking about his, you know, and he and I said, well, you know, and so we had this little discussion, and I'll never forget it. And I said to him, I said, Carlos, and I meant it respectfully because I really do love this guy. He's a great guy. So I don't want to. I don't want it to sound anything but but i did say to him when are you not in the action stage he said well of course bob you know that when, when you're in the pre-contemplative -con, pre stage and i said i said respectfully that's when they're not in your action stage <laughs> wow and i said yeah. for me for me the patient is always in the action stage it's just not yeah. the one you want them to be in so yeah. for for me if someone says you know i'm not ready to give up drugs right now <clears throat> As a matter of fact, I'd like to chip a little bit on the weekends because I like to party with my friends and I want to learn how to stop during the week so I don't screw up my job. That's the action stage for me. That's not pre-contemplative. It's pre-contemplative if you see everything through one lens, one abstinence-based lens. But I see it through this is what my patient wants. Sounds reasonable. Let's go with it. You know, let's see if I can coach you into doing that because maybe you can. And you know what? A lot of folks can. Some people could even chip heroin. Oh, my God, I did say that. But it's true. You yeah. know, it's true. I've seen it. Yeah. You know, yeah. not, you know, one size does not fit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think you guys are right. As we run short on time, I have just one final thing. And Tim, I'll start with you. But Bob, I'll get the same thing to you. Okay. <laughs> Complete this sentence for me. Until treatment organizations are willing to undertake and share measurement of outcomes blank. Uh, until they're ready to do that, we are going to be in a cycle of uh, the same old, same old, and that is that model that is uh, has has access challenges, is not able to deliver any kind anything close to a relevant dose of care, service, and support. Um, it is going to continue to create and sustain a revolving door situation. It is going to continue to take capital from people that is not easily replenished once they're, they've gone through a process 
of treatment and recovery. And, and so until that happens, we won't get a new model. We'll, we'll, we'll chip away, <laughs> but we won't be able to get to the model where value return on investment is a real outcome. It is a real outcome. It is a real possibility that if I'm struggling, I can get somewhere to some outcome that isn't predetermined. It's, it's determined by me. It's that proximal thing that Dr. Bob was talking about. And, and I think there's such freedom in that. And I get chills thinking about it because I have lost so many people. I have lost close friends. I have lost acquaintances. I've lost people I've just met in passing in AA meetings. And I have lost people who are so important to me. And I think about it all the time, the lost opportunity. If we had not been, if we have, we, if we have respected that each of those people were always in action and they weren't in pre-contemplation just because they weren't doing what I wanted them to do, they could be still alive. No, I, I agree. Okay. I think that one of the things we have to change and change has been good for the field. Um, many people know that, listen, uh, I lost my older brother to a self-inflicted he overdosed, um, found out he was HIV positive in 1990. That was it for him. But he couldn't get into substance use treatment because his psychiatric symptoms made it difficult for him to comply. And he couldn't get into psychiatric treatment because he couldn't give a negative urine. Today, we treat co-occurring disorders. to get That may have saved his life. I don't know. Maybe not, but it, it would have given him a better chance. So change has been good. And I think that you're right. We have to accept some change. Dr. Bob, same thing to you. Until treatment organizations are willing to undertake and share measurements of outcomes, blank. We'll continue, we'll continue to have a crisis of credibility. And, uh, we'll, and, and treatment will continue to be questionable. Gentlemen, I really thank you for, for, for joining me today and, and having this conversation, which is going to be difficult for many people to hear. And I'm okay with that. Matter of fact, I applaud that because these are conversations that have to happen. People don't have to agree, agree, but we have to have the difficult conversations to really elicit any meaningful change in the field. And, and Dr. Bob, like you said, you know, we're we're planting a tree that we'll never sit under. So I thank appreciate you, your time, guys. Thank you for joining us. Um, and, and anything Thanks, you'd Dr. like to add quickly before I finish? I'm good. No, I mean, I, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I respect both of you and I look forward to more conversation down the road and any way that I can be of service. <laughs> um, I look forward to, uh, to, to doing that with each other and, and to, to plant trees. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's a privilege to be in the same, um, in the, in the same, uh, uh, same room with both of you. Thank you so much. Gentlemen, Thanks, thank Dr. you. Bob. The privilege really is all mine. And, and that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Dr. Bob Lynn and also Timothy Harrington for joining us. And I hope this discussion really helps elicit some questions that you have and that you want to address. We again extend our gratitude to Mountainside for their generous support. And we here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. And you can follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. As I say every week, I listen on Amazon just because it's the easiest for me. Um, and we'll catch you next time, everybody. Thank you.